Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and study your word. We ask you to be with us, guide us, teach us, your spirit lead us in all that we're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verse 15. I want to go back and start the sentence that he wrote because Peter is almost as bad as Paul are writing long sentences. So we're going to start reading at verse 12. But these, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. They shall receive the reward of the unrighteous, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots are they and blemishes, sporting themselves in their own deceivings, while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, and beguiling unstable souls in heart, they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, Bozor who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for, in his, for his iniquity. The dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that carry with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they lure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire." All right, so Peter here is continuing his talking about those that are leading people astray. And we saw, you know, in, as I caught you back up, they're the ones speaking about things they don't understand. They are going to perish in their corruption. They uh, will receive the reward for their unrighteousness. Uh, their eyes are full of, they're full of adulteries. They cannot cease from sinning. And we talked about them being prisoners. So he's continuing in verse 15, which have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for in his iniquity by uh, the dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. This does not indicate that you can lose your salvation. This indicates those who, upon hearing the righteous way of living rejected outright and this is something that you see if you talk to enough people you will see many of them go well what you're talking about is too easy or or you know salvation is too easy or trying to live a godly way is too hard and i've heard both both directions i can't live like a christian so therefore i'm not going to become a christian well i can't live like a christian either it's the spirit of god working through me that helps me live as a christian and this is what he's saying here, they're unstable. They've, they've forsaken the right way. They've gone astray after the way of Balaam. And I'm hoping everybody in this group remembers who Balaam is. Balaam was from Numbers chapter 31 when the people of Israel were going through 
Balak called for him, for uh, uh, Balaam, who was a prophet of God. And it doesn't anywhere say that he wasn't a prophet of God. He wasn't an Israelite, but he definitely uh, was a prophet. He cursed people and they were cursed. He blessed people through God and they were blessed. And even when Balak called, he goes, I can, I can only say what God says to say. You want, me to, you want me to curse them, but I can only say what God says. And he denied going with him three times because God said, don't go. And Balaam had a problem. He liked money. And Balak said, okay, I'll give you lots of money. I'll give you title. I'll give you prestige. He kept playing at the baser part of Balaam's uh, flesh. And Balaam you know, kept going to God, God, can I go? Can I go? Can I go? And God finally told him, and this is a very interesting thing, God told him, if they come to you one more time, you can go. And then the very next verse says that Balaam went to them. So Balaam didn't wait as God said, because I don't think God was going to let them come. He, wasn't gonna, he gave permission to go, but he said, only if they come. And the very next verse says, he went to them. So Balaam wasn't in obedience when he did this. Now he's thinking he is. God said, I could go. But he forgot the little extra words, if they, if they come to you. How many times do we kind of do the same thing in our life? Uh, God, uh, I see here you got permission. I'm going to leave out those next five words that would tell me that I can't. But you, 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 you said it's possible. You said it could be done. And we forget about it. Then not only did Balaam do this, you know, he started riding with them, and this is where you get the story of the donkey speaking to him. The, he, the donkey goes off to the field, and Balaam beats him and gets him back on the road. Then he crushes his leg up against a wall trying to get away from him, and then he stops and just lays down. And Balaam's beating on him, and the donkey said, why are you beating on me? And you know, Balaam answers him, you know, because you're being disobedient. And, you're, and the donkey goes, well, haven't I always been a good donkey for you? It's kind of an interesting story. You know, I, I just can't imagine that Balaam, you know, if I had one of my animals actually talking to me in a human voice, it would, it would, it would uh, shock me so bad, I don't know that I would be talking to the, to the animal. And yet he's talking to him, and then the angel shows himself and, and then allows him to go. And Balaam blesses Israel every time much to Balak's uh, uh, upset and anger and says, you know, I, I can't brought you up here to curse. And Balaam goes, well, I can only say what God says to say, and I, he won't let me curse them. And you can almost picture him trying to say something that's a curse and having his words changed every time he spoke. And I've had that experience where maybe not trying to curse somebody, but my words just don't come out the way I was wanting to say them. You know, and I was ready to do something, blessing or teaching, and they just, no matter what I want to say, just what I wanted to say does not come out. And this is where Balaam's at. He cannot, he cannot curse, he curse these people. But we find out later on in Deuteronomy, Balaam told Balak how to get the people to be cursed by their God on their own. And that's when he said, you know, hey, ba Balak, if you really want them to be cursed, then they have to do something that their God's going to curse them. Send in the women and, and your good-looking men to, to get them to worship idols. Worship your God, and they'll be cursed. And that's why we get the whole talk. Anywhere we see Balaam, that's the part they're referring to. Not his good blessing of them on the mountain, but his later on when he said, go trip them up. Go, go let them get tripped up in their sin 
and then their God will punish them. Balak understood sin has consequences, and that's what he told Balak. Go in there and help them sin. We need to be careful of people that want to help us sin. And we should never be the person who's helping somebody sin. And, you know, that's pretty easy sometimes, though. You know, how many times do we hear somebody give ungodly advice? You having a bad time in your marriage? Oh, man, that person is a total jerk. You need to get out of it and divorce them. Okay, what's your scriptural background, uh, background for, those, for that advice? God says he hates divorce. And then I use divorce because it's the easiest one. People know that one, and we know that that happens frequently. Just go get divorced. You know, you're, sure, you're supposed to be happy. God wants all of us to be happy. Well, lie. Lying? Yeah. Oh, just don't tell them the truth. You know, and that's on the basis of this is the false assumption that God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to be content. But nowhere in the scriptures does he say that we're going to be happy 24-7, 365 days a year. Now, he says be happy, be joyful, be, be of good cheer. But he also knows that there's going to be times when we do not have that to be true, where we are just enduring. And we need to be careful about our advice to people. Oh, you're sad, you're not, you're not happy with that job, get away from it. That job may be just what God's using to teach you something, and when you jump out of it, you're out of God's will. Uh, that marriage, that relationship might be just what God's teaching you to be patient with and to be loving with. Uh, you know, we never know. And as you said, lying, how easy is it to lie? Well, I didn't quite lie. I just bent the truth a little bit, or I didn't quite tell the whole truth. And God's saying, well, I said that the, when you speak the truth, if you don't speak what you know, you're lying. And, you know, it's easy for us to justify it. Well, I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I, I, didn't, want, I, didn't, I, I didn't want to break a confidence that somebody else gave me. That's one of the reasons we don't want to know confidences that can't be spoken. Because that really does put you in a pretty big bind. You listen to somebody's uh, words with, that is in confidence, and then somebody asks you a direct question about it. And you're going, uh, can't tell you. And if that's what you do, that's fine. But usually we try to skate around it and, and tell them half-truths or non-truths. And that is something we need to be very careful about. Uh, because here it says, these people have forsaken the right way and gone astray. And he uses Balaam as his example. Balaam, a prophet of God, brings curses upon Israel. And I am sure that we never really hear from Balaam after that, but Balaam suffered greatly for that, that sin unless he repented and, and all. But he is known now for evil, not good. And God says, be careful. He says, the donkey speaking in a man's voice forbade the madness or the insanity of the prophet. What does God do to get us away from our insanity sometimes? Sometimes. Oh, it might be a car accident, you know, on your way someplace. It might be losing your health. It might be somebody just coming in your, in your path and, and rebuking you. Uh, God can do anything in this. In this particular case with Balaam, he used a donkey. And not too many places have I heard him using animals to, to rebuke people. Uh, not with voices anyway. <laughs> uh, but this was an extreme. He was going out. He was ready to, to place a curse on Israel, and I don't know what God could have done. His prophet puts a curse on Israel, which is not right. He could not allow that to happen. He could not allow that to happen because then he's got to 
prophet who's supposed to be speaking for him, he'd probably have to kill Balaam right there on, right, right in front of Balak if he tried to actually make a curse. And God stops him, stops him from doing it, but yet he will later on show them how to bring a curse upon them. And that is Satan's plan all the time. What can he do to put us off the track of serving God? Will it be a sin? Will it be a temptation? You know, one of the sins that he uses for Christians sometimes is getting us over busy. Getting us so busy we burn out. And then we blame God. God, I was serving you and, you, and, and I don't feel comfortable and, you know, and I got tired and all these things went wrong. And God says, I never asked you to do half of what you were doing. And it's easy. Satan will try very hard. If he can't keep us from doing anything, he'll try to get us so busy doing everything that we're not good at anything and we get burnt out. And then, in, then when we burn out, we just quit and we go back to doing nothing in most cases. And this is a very big issue. Satan does not like to see us work for God. And when we're doing it God's way, he can't stop us. I love it. And I tell people, if you're feeling totally burnt out, stop doing some of the stuff that God's telling you. Don't stop everything, but go find out what God's told you to do and do what he's telling you to do. Because otherwise, you're going to be completely burnt out. You're going to be tired. It's going to be, oh, I got to do that again, or I'm doing this again. And it's easy to start doing too much. It really is, especially when you have a heart to serve God and you know things need to be done. This is a problem for pastors a lot of times and deacons and stuff, they go, well, that has to be done, and if I didn't do it, nobody else would do it. Well, if nobody else is there to do it, maybe it doesn't need to be done. And I have that full idea. I told a pastor one time who was really worrying about the nursery. He goes, I don't have enough workers in the nursery. And I go, I can fix that for you real quick. He goes, how? I go, close the nursery. He goes, then everybody's going to be complaining about the kids in the service. I'm going, if they don't want to work, then it's obviously not something that's important enough to people. Bring the kids into the service. You might have to talk a little louder. You know, not a problem to me. If we don't have something that's needed or wanted, it, then why try to make it have life? If God's got the people out there that are to do it, it is important. And I share this often, you know, and it's one of the things we even do in our church. You know, is this something that we should be doing? God, is this something we're going to continue doing? Do we have the support of people? If we don't and people aren't working, I'm not going to try to hold it going on my own. On my own. Sunday morning would be one thing, you know, having some Sunday uh, morning service somewhere that's big. Yes, that's important. Whether it's Saturday, Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, it doesn't really matter. But when is it going to be? Traditionally Sunday, so we have it Sunday. Uh, you know, do we need Bible studies? I think so. And people come, so we have it. You know, do we need a Sunday school? You know, we've got people to come to it. If they don't, if they stopped coming, we probably wouldn't do it and we'd find some other way to minister. And this is just it. Most of what we do, we do just be out of habit. And we want to be careful of that. It's does God want it done? If he wants it done, we do it. Otherwise, we're doing Balaam's thing, going off, doing, doing what we want to do. And it may or may not be good. Then he goes on, these people are like wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. Wells without water. Now, he's talking to people in a desert. This is a big deal. You know, and we understand that. And even in our day, we understand, you know, if you're trying to find water and you go someplace and there's no water, especially if it looks like there's supposed to be water, you know, you turn on the water faucet and no water comes out. 
and you're thirsty, then you know how disappointed you are. And that's what he's saying about these people that have turned away from the truth. They're like wells without water. They look like they should have water and truth and comfort, and there's nothing there. He says they're like clouds that are carried by a tempest or, or, a, or a strong squall. There are times when you look and you go, okay, we're going to get rain, especially around here. You know, okay, look at the, the beautiful rain clouds on the horizon, and the next thing you know, they blow right over, and there's no, hasn't been a drop. And that's what he's talking about. You see the rain. You see the, the, the clouds that should be rain, bringing rain, and there's no rain. And he says, these are those whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. In other words, hell. Hell is a place of fire and brimstone and darkness. Now, we can't comprehend that. Fire brings light in our, in, our, in our mindset, but in hell there is no light. It is dark, and yet there's fire. Why? Because God is light. And without God bringing the light, he's not going to allow light in, in hell. And can you imagine, you know, total, absolute darkness for eternity? Burning flame for eternity. Just the darkness. You know, if you're in darkness long enough, it can drive you crazy. Spending eternity in pitch black is going to make people literally go insane. Now, they're without God already, so they're already halfway, halfway to insanity, if not insane already. And then they're going to be in darkness. And one of the things about darkness, if you've ever been in absolute darkness for any length of time, I've never, I, the longest I have been in it is for one hour because I was spelunking and the light went out and it was, you know, we were following, a, you know, our trail back out so we, were, we knew we, we weren't panicking. But you start to hear things. You start to see things even though you can't see things. Uh, you know, and your mind starts playing tricks on you. Hell is going to be like that. And add to it that it is a place of punishment. Literally having flame, you know, flames burning you. you know, and I don't know if the roar of the flame is going to be there as well, but no light. You know, there's going to be the guilty conscience that I chose to be here. It's going to be a terrible, terrible place. And this is what he's talking about. The midst of darkness. These people who reject God. This is their destination. You know, we need to really get an understanding of how bad hell is to give us a heart to go after the lost world. And I've shared over and over, I really don't want to see anybody go to hell. I don't care how bad they are or how bad they treat people. I don't want to see them go to hell. You know, I suffer from gout, and I've told people I don't want to wish gout pain on anybody, and it's terrible. It's nothing compared to hell. And it's terrible, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to wish for any more pain than that is. You know, and we need to be able to look at this and say, there is an awful place that people are going to spend eternity in if they don't know Jesus Christ and be followers of him. Verse 18 says, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. So he's talking about how people can speak words that can draw Christians away. Not into hell, but away from them. And he says they speak great swelling words of vanity. They sound good. They sound real good. Unfortunately, I think many of the televangelists 
fall into this category. I don't know that many of them are saved. They speak great words of emptiness. They might quote a verse out of the Bible and then take it out of context and turn it around and, and words of emptiness, no life in them. And not all of them are like that, but you know, many of them just think, well, I'm here to build this ministry. I've got to please these people. I've got to fleece these people out of their money so I can have a better lifestyle. I don't know what their logic is. I don't know what they're caring about. And I know part of the temptation is that if you don't speak God's word, you can draw a crowd if you're a good speaker. As soon as you start telling people they're a sinner, that there is a judgment coming, and that their sinful lifestyle is sin, they tend to go away. And Jesus understood this. He told everybody one time, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you're going to be my follower. And it says the multitude left him. And then he turned to the disciples and go, are you going to leave me also? And then Peter, one of the times that he was a good, wise man, said, who else are we going to follow? You have the words of truth. But Jesus lost his crowd. How? By speaking something that was hard for them to understand. I would rather have a small group of people that really believe in God's word and truth and understand sin is sin and trying to follow God than a whole thousands and tens of thousands of people who don't believe God. And so I would rather just do that. I know that it's a tough thing because pastors like to look at numbers. And I wish we had a bigger church. It would be wonderful to have a bigger church in many ways. This is true. We have doubled the size of the church in seven years. Maybe in another seven, we'll double it again. Uh, if God wants it, he'll, he'll do that. But you know, great words of vanity that allure through the lust of the flesh. What do people hear? They want to hear speakers that will tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. And that's what we're told. In the end times, people will seek teachers that tickle their ears. Don't want to tell you that your, sin, your lifestyle is a sin. We're just going to tell you God, God is love. God is forgiving. God, God loves you and will take you to heaven no matter what. You know, that's what people want to hear. And there is truth that God loves us. And there's truth that he paid the debt. But it means coming to him first and recognizing that we are a sinner and letting him change our life. And that means we need to be careful, not just having what we want to hear alluring our lust. All right, God, you know, you know I'm in this sinful uh, relationship. I know I'm supposed to be married but, and, and not living with this person. But you know, God, you know, this marriage stuff, it's old. You know, I just want to live with this person and allow, you know, just, just have some fun. No, no strings attached. If we want to break up, there's no, no courts. There's no, no community property, no caring one for each other. And, you know, God, you know, we love each other. You know, we're in a monogamous relationship. You know, our world's definition of monogamous is one at a time. <laughs> I got one today, I got one tomorrow, I've got one next week, you know, I got one next year, but I'm in a monogamous relationship. That is not God's definition of monogamy. One man, one woman, married for life. <laughs> you know, or to death and do you part, you know. Uh, this is interesting how definitions have changed, because I was talking to somebody, because I am monogamous, I only have one person. Okay, that's not what God says. <laughs> All right. Alluring to the flesh. People speak words that go, okay, ah, yeah, you're right. You're, you're, you're living in monogamy. You've only got one person for the next five, five hours, and then you'll have another one. And, you know, uh, I, I understand. You know, 
No, that's not what God says. God does not say that. He says they're, they're playing on their lust. They're playing through the wantonness. Wantonness, that's a strong word. Wanton, absolute evil. That somebody who doesn't even want to do good. The, the wantonness, of, and through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them that live in error. This is one of the reasons we need to be careful about who has influence in our life. Who do we take counsel from? Who, who's our best friend? Okay, and this is critical. I've, I've said it over and over. We need to be friends with the lost. Okay, we need to do things that hang out with them, play sports, you know, go in bowling leagues, be in clubs, you know, have some things that we do with other people that are lost. Otherwise, we have nobody to share the gospel with. But they should not be our best friend giving us advice. Because I can guarantee you one thing, their advice is not going to be godly advice. If they are lost, their advice is going to be what they see on television and what, and what looks good. Well, you know, yeah, you definitely got to get rid of that person. They're, they're, not, they're not somebody you want to be with. And not, not a biblical reason for it. You know, if I go up to somebody and they ask me for advice and I know that they're living together outside of the, the bonds of marriage, I'm going to go, you need to separate yourselves and either get married or separate yourselves and live in two places because you are living in fornication, plain and simple. You know, when I talk, about some, you know, talk to somebody who's living together and wanting to get married, my first step is you need to get right with where you're at now. You need to find separate homes until you're married. Now, my, son and, my son-in-law and my daughter did not like hearing that. You know, but it is what it is. This is what you're supposed to be doing. If you want to do it God's way, this is what you do. And it's important for us to understand there is a godly way of doing things and we need somebody speaking God's word into our ear. If we're a Christian, we need people that give us godly advice. Do we want to hear godly advice all the time? No. I don't even want to hear godly advice all the time, especially if I'm in the mood for doing what it is I'm doing and wanting to do it. I've got friends who have speaking to me and you know, speak to me and say things when they see something. I'm going, okay, yeah, right, you know. And I know what they're saying is true, but it's not what you want to hear. And you might grumble and feel like you're butting into, you know, quit, quit butting into my life, quit trying to tell me what to do. But you also recognize it because you, you hear God's word in it. And one of the things we need to get is get to a place where we know when we're hearing God's word. And I've heard the several questions from some, you know, I heard this on the radio, I heard this at this Bible study, and it just didn't seem right. And you tell me, and I'm going, sure enough, it wasn't right. But that is listening to God, knowing whether what I'm being told is godly or not godly. Maybe not fully understanding it, but one of the things I love about the Holy Spirit living in us, you know, he sounds the warning sounds to us if we're listening. You know, be careful, bad advice, wrong teaching, be careful. Uh, I, I, I think of when I think of this, you know, the Holy Spirit in us, the, the lost in space, the robot coming out and saying, warning, Will Robinson, warning, Will Robinson. You know, that's kind of what the Holy Spirit does to us. Warning, warning. <laughs> quit, quit listening, quit doing, quit going this way. It's a bad idea. And we can ignore it and get in trouble, or we can listen to it and stay out of trouble. Unfortunately, oftentimes we don't listen. And this is when we need brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to come up to us and say, I'm concerned about you. I'm seeing you going the wrong way. 
Verse 19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption. For whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. Liberty. Liberty is a very powerful word. Liberty means that we have the ability to do as one pleases. All right? And that literally is what liberty is about. In the military, especially the, the, the uh, Navy, they use the word liberty a lot. You're on liberty. That meant you could leave the base and do what you want for space of 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours, however long you had liberty for. All right? Now, the, the qualitative force on this really takes us to true liberty. When we think about true liberty, the definition is to live as we should, not as we please. Right? Liberty literally means I can go out and do whatever I want. I have that liberty. And in God, we have liberty. But true liberty is that I go out and I do what I should be doing. Right? In the military, when you go on liberty, you, are, you have an understanding that the true liberty means that you don't do anything to dishonor the uniform. All right? We as Christians, true liberty, we should not be doing anything that dishonors Christ testimony in us and the way he tells us to live um, we're told you have liberty we have freedom but that freedom has to be tempered by what we know is right and wrong and here it says they speak that you have you know they tell you you're going to have liberty again let's go to all these false teachers out there that are telling you you can do what you want just give us your money and 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 worship god and whatever you feel is good because you're you know god will forgive you all right, yeah, in one sense, we have the liberty. God says we are free. We can do what we want. But true liberty says, no, God says that's wrong. I can't do it. I'm not going to be blessed while I'm doing it. Getting in our mind, sin has consequence. We have the liberty to sin if we want. And God has the right and the obligation to punish us when we do wrong. So if true liberty, we, we live as we should, not as we please, keeps us out of a lot of trouble. These false teachers are not promising that. They're just saying, oh, go do what you want. God is forgiving. And what he's picturing here is grace being used as a license to sin. And I've heard many people that said that over the years. Well, if I do this, God's going to forgive me. You're right. God probably will forgive you when you repent. But you're going to have consequences for what you do. He's a God of love. He's forgiven. He's covered the sin. But there's always consequence. Do you want to live the con? Well, no, God's, God's grace. Yeah. People sometimes totally misunderstand God's grace. Like somehow his grace is going to keep me from suffering the consequences of what's going on. But we want to be so careful about this. It is so easy to walk in sin and say God's going to forgive. And yes, he will, but consequences will always come from that. And I'd rather not test the grace of God because if I can sin without having any moral objection to it, I've got a problem in the first place. So I don't want to have to do it. I, if I sin, I, I don't want it to, you know, Paul in Romans said, you know, should I sin that grace abound? God forbid. Now, you're not going out and sinning just because God gives us grace. We're not to go out and sin. Well, God, I'm going to go, I'm going to do lots of sins so you can give me lots of grace. What a misunderstanding about the grace we already have. 
know, think about this. If you really think about all the sins that he forgave you and before you, before you even got saved, grace has abounded. Newton, in, in amazing grace, you know, understood how mad a sinner he was. And even then, he didn't get out of slave trading right, right away. And God had to give him more grace. We have so much sin before we get saved, and I don't care how old you are when you get saved, you have so much sin before you get saved that it's an amazing grace that God gives you at that time. And then all the sin you do without meaning to and knowing it is an amazing grace, we do not have to go out to sin on purpose so God can give us grace. That just gets us lots of consequences and grace. And this is what is so important. He says, what you are be, they promise you liberty, but they themselves are servants and slaves to sin. And he goes, because that that overcomes you, you're a servant to. We need to understand something very important. I hear people all the, say, all the time saying, well, I do what I want and when I want and how I want. No, you're doing what is, you're being driven by your sinful nature and you're doing what your sin nature wants. You are a slave to sin. I want to be a slave to God. A slave to God has much better benefits, has much better treatment. And if you want to look at it in terms of slavery, you've got a slave owner who loves their, loves their people, gives them plenty of food and housing and is kind to them, or a slave owner that beats them and puts them into shanties with no bed and full of mice and lice and all those other things in there and beats them and, and, and brutalizes them and makes them work hard. You know, I would rather be the, the slave to the owner that cares, and that's God. We are a slave to one or the other. We are not the free agents that we think. When Satan got Eve to sin, all she did was switch her allegiance to somebody else and didn't know it. And there's been trouble ever since. We need to understand that we are never totally free. The lie of the world is you can be free to do what you want. You don't need that God who has, who has all these rules. Just come over to us and live without rules. There's no such thing. God's rules are his rules. He does not suspend them just because you don't believe in them. He doesn't suspend them just because I don't want to buy them. And, you know, I don't believe there's a God. Well, that's good. It doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not. He's still there. Well, I don't believe that there's absolute rules. Okay, go up to the top of the, the cliff and step off and see if there's an absolute rule that says you're going to fall. You know, well, I don't believe that I need air to breathe. Okay, well, you just go tie a weight around you and go jump in the, uh, into the river and, and sit at the bottom of it and see how long you live. There are absolute rules that are needed. We as human beings are subject to gravity. We as human beings need air. We as human beings need food and water. If you try to go out with those absolute rules, without those, you will die. Some take longer than others to die, but you will die. When we sin, it is an absolute guarantee that God's judgment demands that there's consequences. And there will be consequences because his rules, everything about this world is based upon God's character. God said he is light, so therefore there is light so that we can see. God says he is true, so he is the bearing of truth and truth is the standard 
that this world runs on, even though the fallen world runs on the lie. He is righteous. Righteousness is what people expect. It's an amazing thing when people go, well, I'm not sure that there's a God. But then they'll determine that there's things that are right and wrong. All right, so what basis are you determining right and wrong on? If there's no God that says that there's something right and something wrong, what basis do you put for it? And virtually everybody will say murdering somebody is bad. I say virtually because we are getting bad nowadays where people don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. It's not a bad thing to murder babies. You know, and it's not a bad thing in many people's minds to murder the old people that are getting sick and infirmed and going to eat up the inheritance by going into a nursing home. Just get rid of them. They're, they're, they're not needed. It's not a bad thing to kill off the dis disabled because you now all they are is a drain on society. We're getting a world that is not looking at murderers in the same way that it's been looked at, at least over the last 2,000 years uh, since Jesus came. And this is a scary thing. We're getting further and further from God's standards. What are we doing? God created male and female, and now we've got a world that has, last count I think was 27 different genders. You know, I don't know how they come up with that. You know, you're male or you're female. God said so. You may think that you're supposed to be something else or both or neither or Volusian or Martian or Plutonian or something. It doesn't matter what you think. You are where God created you to be. You know, we need to be careful. And what's happening in our world is we've got all kinds of confusion out there. How do you deal with this? How do you know that somebody is who they think they are in the first place because they don't match up to, who, you know, to what their body says they are and, and they're acting totally weird and different and are they doing it just because they want to take advantage of other people or are they really meaning it? And there's all kinds of problems that get into this I am what I am, and I can change from day to day because whatever I believe is what I am. You know, and it's a sad world. Sad world when they break themselves off from truth and they speak vanity, emptiness. And it is funny, you know, it is funny sometimes you listen to these psychologists and sociologists telling us all of their supposed wisdom that's opposite of God's, and then... 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, they change their mind because they realize that what they were saying doesn't work. Uh, Dr. Spock, who wrote the book about don't not spanking your kids and how terrible it was, well, 30 years later, when he had had some kids to deal with, he found out that his thoughts ruined his kids and contramanded everything that he said. But decades of kids were ruined by his, his logic that didn't match God's word. Now, I love it when they come on the news and they go, psychology has just discovered, blah, 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 and it matches up to the Bible. I'm going, well, gee, wonderful, you proved the Bible. And it cost us $30 million to find this out. I'm going, well, I could have saved you a whole lot of time. You could have gone straight to the Bible in the first place. Uh, and, you know, it's an amazing thing that people eventually come back to the word of God because that's where truth lies. And, you know, we need to become able to say as Christians... I'm going to hold on to God's word. You, all right, you very smart person with 90 degrees and behind your name and a whole alphabet soup and you've got five others agreeing with you but you disagree with God, you're wrong. And you say that to people and go, well, what makes you think so? Because God's smarter than they are and he already told us the answer. You think you're smarter? No, I don't think I'm smarter than them. I know God is. You know, I know God is smarter. 
and we just let it alone. We don't have to argue with people. We don't have to, we really don't have to defend God that much. We do present God's point of view. This is what God says. Well, prove it. It always proves out. You know, if you're smart enough to start the proving, go ahead, but don't worry about it. God's word is true. It doesn't matter how smart the person is telling you something different. In the 1800s, we had a whole thing of trying to disprove the Bible and trying to show us, well, this one's not true, so you've got to throw it away. This one's true, you can keep it. This one's not true. You know, rationalistic look at the Bible. Pick and choose what you want to believe out of the Bible. And they had their reasons why this piece and this piece wasn't right and this piece wasn't right. We can't start going that route. If we start trying to pick and choose what it is, we've made ourselves God. We're not saying, God, you're true. And what are we putting our hope on? If this word is not true, then I can't trust that God's got my back in eternity. Matter of fact, I can't trust he has my back in this world if this word is not true. Because I stand on Romans 8, 28, for all things, all things work together for good. Well, if I can't trust the Bible, I can't trust that. I can't trust that God created the world. I can't trust that he has a plan. I can't trust that Jesus died and res- rose again. I can't trust that he's going to forgive my sins. I can't trust that there is an eternity in the first place. I have to trust the word of God. And the word of God is very trustworthy. There's lots of reasons why we can believe it. Every scientific event matches up with, with the Bible. Once we get rid of the evolution garbage that's out there, you know, it matches up. All the archaeology, when it says something is someplace and they go, they go to look where God says it is, they find it. You know, all these things they find out are true. All the prophecies that God has put in there saying, I'm giving you this ahead of time, and all of a sudden they come, they come true. I was like, okay, wow, this is interesting. The proofs of the Bible are strong. You know, I don't even know why people want to be an atheist and not believe in God. It takes a lot of faith to be an atheist. It takes a lot of faith to believe in evolution. You've got to believe things that science says doesn't happen, happened at least once. Maybe have been billions of years ago, but you've got to believe that it happened at least once, even though science says it can't happen. You know, and the greatest one is that nothing, nothing became everything. That's wonderful. You know, I can't even understand how anybody believes that, that nothing becomes everything. You had nothing, now you got everything. You didn't have life, now you have life. We don't know how it happened. It didn't get born from anything. It just sprang up. You go, wow, you got a lot of faith. And you have my problem believing in a God that's a superior, you know, superior being outside of nature. I have, that's easier to believe than nothing, nothing gave, gave birth to everything and nothing, no non-life gave birth to life. I have big problems believing that. That makes no sense to me at all. And this is what he's saying. You're under bondage. Under bondage. Verse 24, If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled thereof and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Again, we're not saying that they've lost their salvation here. It's saying how great a depravity it is to be backslidden, to know that there's something better, and be walking in whatever sin that has got you bound up when you know you're supposed to be free. 
you know, I know that I'm supposed to be doing better, and here I am walking in darkness. Here, you're walking, you've too, well, the light is still there because it's inside you, but you're, it is so covered and, and, and everything. And you're walking around in a darkness, or I don't, I don't know if darkness is the right word, more of an obscured mist. Because you still have the light. You have the, you have the light because you are his. And he's still knocking, knocking, a little quieter each time, but he's there, putting you in positions to try to make you acknowledge him. But you know there's something better. You know that there should be some excitement. You know that there should be some pleasure. You know that you should have contentment and you're not there because you are bound up in your sin and your conviction and your doubts. My doubts about where I'm at. Somebody who's backslidden should have doubts about their salvation because they're under conviction. Now, that doesn't mean they've lost it, but they should be in a place where I just don't know. I'm not following God. I know I'm not doing, I know the Bible says I should be doing this. I know that God said, and I was happier when I was doing it, and now I'm not there. And this is what Peter says. Their, their latter end is worse for them than their beginning. Because now, when you're sinning before Christ comes into your life, you're just sinning, you're not happy, but you're not totally miserable. You don't know a better way of life. You are just a prisoner to that way of life. When you become a Christian and you go back to that way of life, it is no longer satisfying because you know there's something you should be doing and you know that you're miserable when you shouldn't be and everything about it is bad. Everything. And you know that there's something better. Now you might get used to that, that miserable, miserable life, but you know, I hope not, but God is still knocking on your door, connecting with you. And Peter's saying here, you know there's something better and it makes it very hard. Verse 21, for it had been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered unto them. So again, you know better. God, I know that you say I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I just want to do it. And by the way, God, I haven't been to your church. I haven't been reading your Bible. I haven't been following you. I haven't been talking to you. Just leave me alone. And if you're his, he's not leaving you alone. If he leaves you alone, then you aren't his in the first place. And you might still be miserable. The, the one who's really miserable, this one's kind of leading the fact that there are Christians who are in this place. But the ones who's really miserable is the lost person who has heard the word of truth and knows that there's a better plan and still lives in their darkness. Because they don't even have the hope of heaven. They don't even have the conscience being, being they just know there's a better way. And this is something that happens so often when people spend their life in, in church. They may even read their Bible every day. They may even pray to something every day, even though it's not God, because they don't know him. And they go to church when the doors are open. They listen to what's going on, and they don't know God. And they never know the contentment that God brings. They never know the peace that God brings. All they know is a whole bunch of rules that they're struggling to obey. Have you ever been in a place where you've struggled to obey God's rules? I've been there. It happens all the time where, God, I think you want me to do this. And you're going, wow, God, I can't do this. <laughs> and we go through all these problems. Try doing it without God in your life. You know, I have seen the people that get saved after, you know, in their 
50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and all of a sudden realize, I don't know the God that I've been going to church and hearing about all my life. Knowing God. And this is important for us. In this particular section, it's not talking about the lost that are this way. He's talking about Christians who have backslidden. That they're miserable. And as he says, it's happened after the, prof, uh, the proverb. The dog has returned to, to his vomit and the pig to his, to his mire. Now, and this is what I hear from everybody. If you clean up a pig, he'll find mud right off the bat. Now, I had a dog that did that, not necessarily mud, but you, know, you cleaned him up, gave him a bath, and he immediately ran out and rolled in the weeds and the, got the scents back on him. He hated, he hated being cleaned. Uh, so we had to keep him in the house till he was fully dried. And even then, as soon as he got out, he'd go rolling around and in some stinky weed somewhere to, to get smelly. You know, we do this oftentimes as Christians. God, I just kind of, I think I like this sin a little bit, so I'm going to go back out and wallow around in it and get the consequences for it. You know, mess up my testimony. And be miserable. Be miserable. Because isn't it true, when you go out and you do a sin as a Christian, God's immediate... Usually he's convicted us even before we do it, but he definitely convicts us afterwards. And say, like, why did I do that? God, can you forgive this one? And believe me, it's even worse, and you've probably been there when you do it on purpose. God, I just want to do this. I don't care that you don't want me to do this. And it's sad that we can be that rebellious. It really is. And yet God's there speaking. Don't do this. Don't do it. Oh, now you've done it. Now you've got the consequences for it. At the very least, a guilty conscience. And sometimes even worse, that something bad has happened and there may be something on, on, our, on our hearts and on our conscience and on our account. You know, it may be some, we may think we've gotten away with it. God, it was just a little bit of pornography that I was watching. Uh-huh. All right, maybe you got away with it. It affected the way you think about people. It affected the way you're doing it. But what happened to the life of the person that provided your sin? What happened to them? Well, you know, it's not my fault. Uh-huh. If you weren't there, would, would, would anybody have watched it? Would anybody have, would it be going on? You know, there is nothing that is victimless out there. Somebody is always hurt. I tell a lie. Well, nobody really got hurt. They just didn't learn the truth. Uh-huh. Maybe they needed to hear the truth. Maybe they really needed to hear it, and now you've kept them from hearing it. Now they're basing their decision on a lie. You know, does, does this shirt make me look bad? Ah, it looks, it looks fine. Yeah. Looks fine. As they go out and everybody's laughing at them because it's the ugliest shirt that's ever been seen on, you know, seen on the face of the earth. You know, and now they're really hurt. You, know, you were just trying to keep them from feeling hurt. So now you really get them hurt. Now they're mad at you as well because you didn't care enough to tell them. You know, but, you know, we've got these things, and I use that one because that's one of the ones that's hard. It's one of the ones that are very hard. And if you don't want to hear the truth, don't ask the question. Uh, but, you know, there is no victimless crime. There is nothing that doesn't cause problems somewhere. And that problem may be a long ways down the road even. You know, it may be 20 or 30 years before it actually gives fruit. But there is a consequence for everything that's done. And it isn't just us. And I talk about that all the time. It isn't just us that face the consequence. It always affects other people, and they suffer a consequence for the same thing. And it may seem like a very small thing to us. 
But I have a feeling in the spiritual realm, we may see that it's a much worse problem than we think it is. Now, why does God say that gossip and lying and maligning of people is worse than murder and, all, and rape and all of those? Because those things hurt the soul and damage the soul and may cause them a lot longer pain than any physical pain would have. Would have. We need to be careful. Stand for God. Speak truth in love. And that's the most important thing. God says speak the truth in love. I have heard lots of people speak truth, but there was no love in it. When they got down, the person felt like they were about three inches tall, and all they did was say the truth. I go, yeah, but you could have done it in a little nicer way. This even happened to us at work the other day. They were in a meeting, and this one guy got off, and he went on a diatribe. You know, and it's like, okay, maybe what you're saying is true, but you could have said it in a lot kinder, a lot gentler way. And we need to be careful. Speaking the truth in love. And I've heard lots of people speak the truth without love. And you look at their words, and yes, their words were true. Yes, they were right. But there was no love involved in them at all. And that's a sad place to be. A person coming out of that doesn't feel like they're loved. They don't feel like they care. All they feel like, oh, I got beat up. All right, yeah, you, you did get beat up. And that person didn't care about you, and I understand that. Now you need to go through, and this is what I share. You know, when somebody does that to you, at least try to look at their words. Was there truth in their words? And there's not always truth in their wor you know, words when people do that to you. But usually, even if they do it wrong, there's usually some element of truth, and you need to kind of pick out, okay, I guess they were trying to help me. Yes, I see that that might be true. And ask God to help you implement it. And it's tough. Believe me, I understand what it means to get chewed out and attacked and, and all. Uh, my dad was a chief. Especially before he got saved, he did not know how to give love at all. And even after, it was a hard time for him to give words that had love behind them. They were usually true words. They were usually valid words, but they hurt. And you had to really sit back and listen and say, okay, God, you know, help me pick out what was needed out of all of this and work for him on that. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, help us to avoid those who do not speak correctly. Help us to find people that will speak to us in love. Lord, help us avoid being in a backslidden state and a slave to things that are ungodly. Help us to always be your slave and your servant, which has great promise and great, great blessing. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.